Now you turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel and 2 Samuel in chapter 23. Samuel 23. We'll read the first seven verses. Do Samuel chapter 23. We'll pray before we read God's word. Lord Almighty God, we thank you for your holy scriptures that holy men of old wrote as they were carried by the Holy Spirit. We ask this morning that you would help us to read, to mark, learn, inwardly digest for Jesus' sake. Amen. This is God's holy word. 2 Samuel 23, it says it's the last words of David. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was named, raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me, his word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with a hand, but the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. May the Lord add his blessing to this reading of his holy and inerrant word. Well, these are David's last words, King David's last words. What you have in 2 Samuel 22 and 23 are what you might call a couple of songs, a couple of songs. One, of the, one is a song of deliverance in chapter 22. And the last section, last section of chapter 23 is a psalm of great confidence and great assurance about what God is going to do in the future. They're his last words, great David's last words. Jim Elliot, the missionary who was martyred in 1956 for his faith, and only 29 said only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. And it's not while they weren't her last words. I've been struck by, some, by looking at the broadcast that the Queen made to the nation. And how overtly Christian she was in an increasingly hostile and non-Christian world. In 2011... On her Christmas Day message, the Queen said, For many, this Christmas will not be easy. With our armed forces deployed around the world, thousands of service families face Christmas without their loved ones back at home. The bereaved and the lonely will find it especially hard. And as we all know, the world is going through difficult times. And all of this will affect our celebration of this great Christian festival. Finding hope and adversity is one of the themes of Christmas. Jesus was born into a world full of fear. The angels came to frighten shepherds with hope in their voices. Fear not, they urged. We bring you tidings of great joy which shall be to all people. Although we are capable of great acts of kindness, history teaches us that we sometimes need saving from ourselves, from our recklessness or our greed. 
God sent into the world a unique person, neither a philosopher or a general, important though they are, but a saviour with the power to forgive. That is what our Queen thought of the Lord Jesus. And it was her prayer that we might all find room in our lives. Last words are very important. Winston Churchill, who was the first Prime Minister, said very sadly, and he was the one who said, never give up. He said on his deathbed, I'm convinced there is no hope. That's how Churchill went out. But Robert Bruce, the King of Scotland in the 13th century, uttered these words just before he died. Now God be with you, my dear children. I have breakfast with you and shall sup with my Lord Jesus Christ. And you can't help thinking that of the Queen. That would have been true of the Queen in that sense. Hegel, the philosopher whose philosophy influenced, amongst others, Karl Marx, said, only one man ever understood me, and he didn't understand me. And he was right. Thomas Hogg, a Scottish Presbyterian minister, this is one of my favourite that I found this week, in the 17th century, are there any Scottish people here this morning? Um, because, yeah, I know you guys, but um, there you go, look, they're all here. So um, I'm celebrating the Scottish this morning. But uh, Thomas Hogg, a, a Scottish Presbyterian minister in the 17th century in a little town called Kilturn, before he died, he charged his congregation that he'd be buried at the door of the church with this epitaph. This stone shall bear witness against the, parish, the parishioners of Kilturn if they bring one ungodly minister in here. <laughs> well, these are David's last words. And they're words that are full of prophetic insight. They're words that began with himself, but they end a thousand years away. They are words that are full of assurance. They are words that are full of confidence. They are words about God's covenant and God's character about what God is going to do. And in, and in these days, my friend, in these uncertain days, we find hope in God, in God's everlasting covenant, in God's everlasting character. And David begins these first three verses repeating himself over and over and over. Three times he tells us that these words are not his words. They are an oracle, an oracle from on high. He tells us that these words are given to him by the Spirit. He tells us that these words are given to him by the God of Israel. Dale Ralph Davis, who's the commentator from the States, he tells of a young preacher who began a sermon, and his text was from Psalm 40, 6 to 8. And I'll read that. In sacrifice and suffering, suffer, sorry, sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you've given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your will is within my heart. And, but all he could remember were the words, Behold, I, I come. So he repeated himself a bit like David did. Behold, I come. And he couldn't think of anything else to say. There was a pregnant pause. He took a deep breath. That's why I have notes in case I freeze, by the way. And he said, Behold, I come. 
and still nothing. So the third time he gripped hold of the pulpit and said, Behold, I come. And the pulpit gave way and he fell into the lap of the woman in the front row. And he began to apologise to the woman. And she said, Oh no, it is me that should apologise. You told me three times you were coming. <laughs> well, David told us three times that it's not his words, but it's the words of Almighty God. So he repeated himself three times to tell us these aren't my words, these are the words of Almighty God. So read these as a word of God's word, God's word through King David, his last words. And first of all, it's a word about the future. The first thing to note is that we've been given a word here about the future. It begins with David's house. It begins with David as a king figure. But the word is pointing away from David. It's about a future of the Davidic monarchy. Davidic monarchy. Historians, I think all of us, I'm a historian, my sons are historians. It's interesting to note that I, you know, I did quite a lot of research when Liz Truss said that we are entering the Carolean age. And so it's interesting to do a bit of research about that. that the Elizabethan age is over and we're now in the Carolean age. But this was the Davidic age, this was the Davidic monarchy, and the words are about the future of the Davidic monarchy. It is about a king who is going to come, who is going to rule justly, and in the fear of God. Those words are so poignant. A king who will rule in the fear of God. And it's about a covenant that is everlasting and ordained in all things and sure. It is a word about the future. These are prophetic words. It is a word about what God has been doing and is doing and will do for his people. And David is not saying, have confidence in me. David was a sinner. Yes, David was a great king. He had wonderful battles and exploits, wisdom beyond his years. But he was a terrible sinner. He wasn't saying, trust in me. He's saying, trust in God and in God's words. And for us all, that is a salutary message today. Trust in God and trust in God's words. There is an unsettling about the last few days. Because prime ministers come and go. But the Queen was always there. And then there was always her Christmas messages. There was always her faith that we Christians were thankful for. So there is something unsettling, isn't there, about the Queen no longer being there in some ways. But I think what it is meant to do is to draw us to him who we do trust. To trust in God, to trust in his word, that he is sovereign. And he is saying that the future is certain. He is saying that God knows the future. He has ordained the future. He has structured the future. He has given it shape and dimension. If you contrast that with the view that is fairly prevalent in our time, you come across some guys and they, they seem really, really, really good scholars, really wise, and then you suddenly realise they're an open theist. Which is saying that God does not know everything. How depressing that is. I hope you're not an open theist this morning, because I find it the most depressing thing of all. 
that God knows some things, but he doesn't know everything. And in order to secure the true liberty of our wills and the liberty of our decision-making, the future is wide open. I'm so glad that is not the case. There are certain things, they believe that certain things about the future that God has not decreed. How could you ever be certain about our eternal future if that was the case? How could God in David's time be ever sure that Jesus would come if the future was wide open? No, David is saying, and I think we should all be saying this morning, that there is a hand at work here. There is a decree at work here. There is divine sovereignty at work here. And from that, we find great comfort and great assurance. What is it, what is it, my friend, that enables us to keep going in the face of trials and tribulations? What is it that keeps us going? It isn't that we know what the future is. Sometimes the most unsettling moments is because we kind of want to know the future, but we don't. I don't know what the future holds. I don't know what tomorrow holds, or next week, or next year. But it isn't important that I do. It's not important that I know, because it is important that I know the God who does. And it is sure, because he has decreed it, and he has ordered it, that all things work together for good for those who love him. So that you and I can say this morning with absolute certainty that having begun a good work, he will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And nothing, and no one, can stand in the way of that. So we are full of confidence and we take confidence from the words of the Lord Jesus in the upper room. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. David is saying, God has given me a word He's given me an oracle, and it's about the future. Secondly, it's a word about the future, but it's a word about Messiah. If the first couple of verses are about the future, because it is in the hands of God, the second thing is that David's last words are words about Messiah. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God. The end of verse 3. He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my health and my desire? David's talking about the one who rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of the Lord. But then David becomes the poet that he is. He's a remarkable poet, King David. He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. If you're not a poet, then you can scratch your head, I guess. But if you put your poet's hat on, try and put a poet's hat on, it's an idyllic picture. 
It's that pastoral scene of how beauty comes after a storm. I don't know about you, but I do love walking out after a storm. How the, how the rain falls on the grass and the grass seems to turn a remarkable green. Talking about beautiful pictures of creation, you see how God, how God drew his bow in the sky on Thursday? You couldn't, have, you couldn't have made that up? Out over Buckingham Palace and over Windsor Castle? Rainbows? But the, you, know, that, you know, that bright green of the grass after the rain. And David is using that imagery, that picture of creation, to say that out of the chaos of the time in which we live, God is going to produce a ruler upon whose shoulders will be the government who walks, walks righteously and in the fear of the Lord. And David mentions the everlasting covenant, a covenant that is ordered and secured. So on his deathbed, King David is thinking about God's covenant, about God's promise. God entered into many covenants in the history of the Bible, a covenant with Abraham, saying to Abraham that his offspring would be like the stars of the night sky, and the sand upon the seashore and promising him a seed when he wasn't even married, when he had no children. And that seed is a reference to the coming of Jesus Christ. And then that covenant with Moses. And Moses would be the one to say that God would raise up a prophet just like Moses. And God teaching the people of God in that period by laws and regulations how they needed that mediator. Those food laws, those ceremonial laws, teaching them the difference between clean and unclean, teaching them that they need a mediator. They need someone to stand between them. All those sacrifices in Israel, showing that without the shedding of blood there can be no remission of sins. I never understand it when people say that they don't like the Old Testament, there was a famous mega church pastor who said, we'll ditch the Old Testament. Awful, heretical. We, yeah, we see these, these beautiful pictures of Jesus. And God made a covenant with Abraham, with Moses, with David. In 2 Samuel 7, God made a covenant with David just as he had made with Abraham, just as he'd made with Moses, just as he'd made with Noah. He made a covenant with David. It's a key passage in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7. It's God coming again to his king, his Davidic king, and saying that he isn't the mediator, he isn't the saviour, but he points to the mediator. He points to the saviour. He points to the king. My friend, Jesus is the king of kings. He is the sacrifice for sin. Jesus is the one who will truly obey the law of God, Jesus is the one who will rule in godliness over his people. He's thinking about this covenant. And David on his deathbed is thinking about the everlasting covenant. How long is everlasting? It's a silly question, isn't it? Because everlasting is forever. And David, as he is conscious of the passing of time, as he's conscious of the psalm of Moses, the days of our years are threescore years and ten, and if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, 
Yet is their strength labour and sorrow, for it is soon cut off, and we fly away. And he's conscious that he is passing, but he's conscious that there is something that will never pass. There is something that will never fail. There is something that can never be broken. There is something that is enduring. There is something that is inviolable. And that is God's covenant. That is God's promise. It is his word. It is his bond. It is his oath. And my friend, God cannot deny himself. God cannot go back on his word. God cannot undo what he has promised to his people. My friend, there is never any plan B with God. And the covenant is ordered and secure. It's not haphazard, it's not will-o'-the-wisp. The covenant with Abraham, with Moses and with David, and the new covenant that Jeremiah speaks of in Jeremiah 31. The covenant that Jesus speaks of in the upper room, when he took the Passover and he gave them the cup and said, this is the blood of of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It's saying to us that God is weaving a story that has a beginning. It weaves its way through the pages of the Bible. Each covenant built in successively on the previous covenant. God didn't change his mind when he came to Abraham. He didn't change his mind when he came to Moses. He didn't change his mind when he came to David. And he didn't change his mind when Jesus came. It is part of God's story of redemption. It has always been his story. From Eden, when God said to Eve that her seed would crush the very head of Satan. It's a word of confidence. It is a word that we rely on. And it is a gospel word. Because the covenant that is ordered in all things and secure is fulfilled in the death of Jesus Christ. Because it is his blood, it is the blood of Jesus, that ratifies the covenant of grace that David was talking about on his deathbed. God has made with us a promise. God has made with us a covenant. And God's covenant of grace, that beautiful thread that you can trace back to Genesis 3.15, through the patriarchs, through Moses and the Exodus, through David, through Solomon, through the prophets, to Bethlehem, to Calvary, to eternity. is an everlasting covenant that can never be broken. And those who put their trust in Jesus Christ will never be cast away. That the blood of Jesus Christ will cleanse from all sin. And having begun that good work, he will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That nothing and no one, not the beast of the sea, not the beast of the earth, not the false prophet or the whore of Babylon or Satan himself can separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So it is a word David's last words, it's a word about the future. It is a word about the Messiah. And it's a word of warning. There's another side to the covenant of God. The closing verses he talks about, worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away. They cannot be taken with the hand. And the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear. 
and they are utterly consumed with fire. My friend, there is heaven to be gained and there is a hell to be shunned. And no one spoke about hell more than Jesus Christ. Paul didn't speak about hell so much, but Jesus spoke about hell. And this morning, David's words to us is make sure, my friend, make sure that your calling and election is sure by trusting in Jesus Christ, the great king, the king to which all kings and queens point, upon whose shoulder is the government, and shelter yourself under the blood of the Lamb. Lean upon the everlasting arms by trusting his every word of promise. I came across an illustration this week, a Colonel Robert Ingersoll. He was a famous agnostic lecturer of the 19th century. And he was given an address on hell. Not quite the guy I'd get to give an address on hell. And he's, he's, he's going to prove, and he proved that hell is just a wild dream of scheming theologians who invented it to scare credulous people. And as he was launching into his subject, a drunken man from the audience exclaimed, Make it strong, Bob. There's a lot of us depending on you. If you're wrong, we are lost. So prove it clear and plain. Well, no amount of reasoning can nullify the truthfulness of the word of God. And David's last words to us tell us that there is heaven to be gained and hell to be shunned. Oh, my friend, we live in historical times, yes, but testing times. And if you're not a Christian this morning, if you are not a believer in Jesus, if you're just going with the flow, if you're just a social Christian, Run to Jesus Christ. Run to Jesus Christ. Confess your sins to him. Confess your need of him. And ask him to be your Lord and Saviour. Your prophet, priest and king. And enter into the joy. The joy that David is singing of. Of sheltering beneath the covenant that is ordered in all things. And sure and everlasting and can never be broken. May God help us to do so. For his glory. Amen.